Today we are uh, going to look at a section of Galatians um, where two important values come into conflict with each other. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 11 through 21 here in just a couple of minutes. The two important values that we're going to see in conflict with each other in this section of Galatians are the values of truth and peace. Truth and peace. You know, in every sphere of life, we are constantly, even if we don't realize it, holding these values of truth and peace in tension. Let me give you an example. Sometimes men, when your wife asks you, if you like her new hairstyle, <laughs> truth would require you to let her know that you do not. But peace requires you to say something more tactful than that. Maybe even something that doesn't quite represent how you truly feel. And in that situation, you have to decide how much untruthfulness Will my conscience allow? Sometimes, ladies, when your husband asks you how you like his cool new sunglasses, and he wants you to affirm that they look as cool as he thinks they do, but you think they look ridiculous, you're in a situation where truth and peace are now in tension. The answer that will keep the peace is something along the lines of, Honey, those are awesome. You look like a movie star. <laughs> the truthful answer is, those are the most ridiculous looking sunglasses I've ever seen. And if you wear those, I'll never want to be seen in public with you again. <laughs> Truth and peace. They are often in tension. Now, those are humorous examples, but truth and peace are serious values, and they often come into conflict in serious ways. Uh, you know, an example of this would be there's a problem at work with a, a co-worker or with a supervisor. Maybe you're being treated really poorly at work. Maybe you're aware of something unethical that's going on uh, at the office. Truth would require you to address the situation. But oftentimes, in order to keep the peace, we choose not to. And oftentimes that leads to inner turmoil, but we want to avoid the unknown fallout of speaking truthfully uh, into a situation uh, that, that is just filled with tension. You know, any type of relationship between people, uh, truth and peace usually come into conflict at some point. There's something that happens in the relationship that you don't like. It's a big enough deal that you feel like you probably need to address it. But there is fear of what the fallout would be. There is fear of losing peace in the relationship. And so we're often making these calculations in different areas of life. Do I value peace over truth in this situation? Or do I value truth over peace? In our reading in Galatians today, again, Galatians 2, um, 11 through 21, these values of truth and peace come into tension in the lives of two great men, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle uh, Peter. And they come into tension 
over issues that go right to the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to find in these verses today from the example of the Apostle Paul is that when the gospel is at stake, truth is more important than peace. When the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, Jesus plus nothing is at stake, truth is more important than peace. And so because of that, I've titled today's message, Truth Over Peace. Let's look now at our text, Galatians 2, 11 through 21. I'll read, you follow along as I do. When Peter came to Antioch, this is Paul writing, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Note first the conflict between these two great apostles, Paul and Peter. And understand what's going on in this situation. In Antioch, Peter had come there and he was freely fellowshipping with the Gentile believers. Peter had not tried to get them to live according to the Jewish traditions and customs. And Peter himself even lived in the freedom of Christ. He lived as a Gentile. Likely one of the ways that that most clearly played itself out was with Peter not observing Jewish dietary restrictions. Peter knew from the revelation he had received in Acts 10 that the Gentiles did not need to observe Jewish traditions and customs. He knew that they didn't need to observe Jewish dietary restrictions because they were not made righteous by those things, but by faith in Jesus. Peter knew that the gospel was Jesus plus nothing. 
And while he was in Antioch, he lived consistent with that revelation until the Jewish believers from Jerusalem showed up. And then, as Paul recorded for us, Peter pulled back from fellowship with the Gentiles. He refused to eat with them because he was afraid of the Jewish believers who had come from Jerusalem who still observed the Jewish traditions and customs. And because of this, Paul did not pull any punches. He calls Peter's actions for what they were. He writes that Peter was being a hypocrite. And he uh, uh, wrote that Peter influenced others toward hypocrisy, even Barnabas. Now let's really let it sink in what Paul did here in Antioch with Peter. Verse 11, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Verse 14, I said to Peter, in front of them all. This isn't like, hey, I'm going to take Peter over to the side and talk to him about what he's done here. Paul says that I said to him in front of them all, you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then, now that these guys have shown up, you're trying to make the Gentiles follow Jewish customs? I mean, we, we really have to understand what's going on here. Peter had been eating with the Gentile believers. Now the Jewish believers show up. He stops. He pulls back. He positions himself with the Jewish believers. And so in front of these Jewish believers that Peter was so trying to impress, Paul calls him out about how he was perfectly fine with the Gentiles and even lived like one himself until these guys showed up. That's pretty incredible. If something like that played itself out within our own congregation, the whisper campaign would be intense. Can you believe that that was done publicly? Like, can you believe it? That's not what should have happened. They should have been taken to private rooms. They should have been talked to in secret. I mean, it would be a, it would be a scandal. And yet this is what Paul did. It's really incredible. I want to give you an example of what this would be like from my own uh, background that maybe some of you, if you uh, came from any type of a holiness background, could, could appreciate. If not, you'll just look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, and that'll be okay too. But when I was growing up in the holiness Pentecostal tradition, one of the teachings at that time was that Christians should not have televisions. But within our group of holiness Pentecostals, there were more liberated holiness Pentecostals who actually did have TVs. But when they were around those who didn't have TVs, they'd kind of like try to keep it on the down low and, and, and hope the subject didn't come up, that they would never have to outright deny that they had one. But, but they would essentially act like they themselves did not have TV and they would always nod in approval when condemnation of TV came up in conversation. What Paul did in Galatians 2 would be similar to me in that situation. 
Now, it would have been odd for me because I would have been about 12 when I would have had to do this. But, but it would have been like me in that situation where I knew someone with a TV was acting like it was wrong and acting like they didn't have a TV in front of the truer believer who still was in the TV is wrong camp. It would be like me saying, well, isn't it interesting that you're affirming that TV is wrong because you and I were just watching TV at your house last night. Why are you acknowledging that TV is okay with me, but now that we're sitting here with these folks, you're acting like it's wrong. You're being a hypocrite. That'd be really nervy, wouldn't it? And that is exactly what Paul did. Paul was really nervy. And not only did Paul do that in that situation, but then he wrote about it and distributed it to all the churches in Galatia. Hey, uh, let me tell you all about Peter's hypocrisy. What he wrote was inspired by God, became part of the Bible. And now, people have been reading about Peter's hypocrisy ever since. This is how much Paul valued truth over peace. Now, evidence suggests that this conflict did not lead to a long-running feud between Peter and Paul. And the later determination by the Jerusalem Council that Gentile believers did not have to live according to Jewish traditions and customs suggests that Peter acknowledged that he was wrong here and that he agreed with Paul's reprimand. That's a good thing. It speaks well of Peter. But on the front end of this thing, Paul did not know how Peter was going to respond. And if Paul had been like most of us, he would have privately appealed to Peter while also privately asking the Gentiles to understand the difficult position that Peter is in he would have tried to play both sides to some extent in hopes of keeping the peace and avoiding a public conflict. But Paul didn't take that approach. Because when it comes to situations that have implications for the gospel, Paul's calculation correctly was that truth is more important than peace. Truth over peace. He actually viewed Peter's actions as sinful. And because they had been done publicly, Paul's calculation was that they required a public response. Now from this story, from this conflict between these two men, uh, I want to do two things. I want to first share four lessons we learn from this conflict and then I want to remind us briefly of the truth that is more important than peace. So let's look first at four lessons we learn from the conflict between Paul and Peter. Here's the first one. Even the most faithful believers and leaders are still and always will be fallible. Fallible. No matter how faithful someone is, no matter how much knowledge of the Bible they have, no matter how much spiritual insight they have, they remain fallible. 
Peter was the disciple who first had the revelation of who Jesus is. You may remember he's the one that spoke up when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the son of the living God. Peter was the one who preached the first sermon of the Christian church and 3,000 people were saved in a single day. Peter was the one who was uh, often walking along the road and he would run into somebody who hadn't been able to walk from birth and he would say something like, silver and gold, I don't have to give you, but what I have, I'm going to give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And people would get up and walk. Peter was a faithful man. He was a great leader. But Peter always was fallible. And in Antioch, he was wrong in how he behaved. He was acting hypocritically. He was doing something that was a direct violation of the gospel that he knew and that he preached. He was placing burdens on people that God had not placed on them. And he was withholding fellowship from those who were a part of God's family through faith in Jesus. The best among us remain fallible. The person that you think is the best Christian you have ever known, fallible. And it's important to remember this for a variety of reasons, but here's a really important one. Even the most faithful people can, and almost certainly will at some point, let us down. Disappoint us. Even act contrary to their faith and to the gospel. Our faith can never be in people. It must always be in God alone. This is one of the main reasons that people leave churches. Because they get upset that people let them down. But folks, God never lets us down. God never lets us down. If we could just accept that people are always fallible, we'd do ourselves a tremendous service. Here's the second lesson. Right doctrine plus wrong behavior equals hypocrisy. Right doctrine plus wrong behavior equals hypocrisy. It's very clear that Peter believed the right things about the gospel. Peter really did understand that the gospel was Jesus plus nothing. He understood that salvation was by grace through faith. He understood that the Gentiles were his brothers and sisters through faith in Christ, and he knew that they did not need to live according to Jewish traditions and customs. The way he acted, however, when the Jewish believers arrived in Antioch, separated him, separating himself from those that Christ had joined him together with, that was completely at odds with the truth of the gospel. He believed the right thing, but he did the wrong thing. And so Paul called him out for his hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a huge problem among Christians. And it's not just Christians out there in some other church. It's Christians in here, in this church. In this room, standing in this spot that I'm standing in, we tell people that the answer is Jesus. 
The source not just of salvation, but of peace and of joy. And yet we spend little time with him in his word or in prayer. We believe the right things. We believe that people will be separated from God forever. Go to hell. Apart from coming into a saving relationship with Jesus. But somehow we never allow that belief to fuel any action on our part. And so we don't invite anyone to church. We haven't given ourselves to being able to clearly articulate the gospel so we could share it with someone who doesn't know. We advertise an outreach and a handful of people show up. Paul called out Peter's hypocrisy. And we need to face our own hypocrisies and turn away. May God grant each of us the grace today to see the areas of our lives where our beliefs are right, but our actions are not aligning with our beliefs. And may we commit to get them aligned, and may the Holy Spirit empower us to match right beliefs with right actions. Here's the third lesson. And this is the one that the sermon's titled after. Truth is more important than peace. In those examples that I gave at the start of the sermon, it's possible that peace is more important than truth. If you can do it without lying, it's probably better to keep the peace when your husband asks you about those glasses than it is to give him the cold, hard truth. And this is true of many things in life. On matters that are, of, that are not of great importance, then peace often does become uh, something that we value more than truth in those situations. But in matters of importance, and specifically for our purposes today when the gospel is at stake, truth is just simply more important than peace. Paul told the truth to and about Peter instead of trying to play politics to keep the peace. And here's the reason that he told the truth instead of playing politics because he says that Peter was, quote, clearly in the wrong. This wasn't debatable. He was clearly in the wrong and, quote, act, not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Clearly in the wrong not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Friends, throughout the Christian church, there is great emphasis on unity, peace. You'll hear Christians say some of the same things that you often hear said in the political arena. Things like, there's more that unites us than divides us. There's an emphasis in many parts of the church to overlook doctrinal differences for the sake of unity. And much of the time, that is actually a good thing. That is actually a good thing. It is a good thing when it comes to matters that can be honestly debated among sincere Christians and where we can honestly come to differing viewpoints. For example, peace over truth 
is the right approach when it comes to things like how often should Christians receive communion? Peace over truth is the right approach because the Bible is not clear on how often we should receive communion. The Bible says, as often as you do it. Some people have taken that admonition, as often as you do it, and said it must be every week. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible's not clear about that. And so where the Bible is unclear or, or allows for honest debate, we can opt for peace over truth. There are actually many things for believers where peace over truth is the right approach because the exact right answer, the truth, is a matter of honest debate. And so when that's the case, we have to give each other grace for differing viewpoints. But when something is clear in Scripture, and when something impacts the gospel, to value peace over truth in those matters is wrong. It's actually sinful. When the clear teaching of God's word and the gospel are at stake, truth is more important than peace. And in those instances, any attempt to keep the peace at the expense of truth is wrong. It is to be unfaithful to God. It is to be sinful. And let me give you a current day example. Within many Christian denominations today, very large percentages of those denominations' leadership, pastors, bishops, presidents of the denominations, professors at the denominations' Bible colleges, have rejected the Bible's clear teaching on human sexuality and gender. Uh-oh. It's been a long time since we've talked about this, but here we are. The Bible is not ambiguous about those matters. The Bible is crystal clear that human sexuality is a gift that is to be expressed only within a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. The Bible is clear that God created us male and female. There is no ambiguity in the Bible itself. And there has been remarkable agreement within the Christian church for 2,000 years on these matters until about two minutes ago, historically speaking. And now... We're at a place where large percentages of a growing number of denominations are saying that the Bible doesn't say what it clearly says about those topics. And in order to get a hearing for their heretical views, and in order to buy time in hopes that their heretical views begin to be adopted by more people, which by the way has been a tremendously successful strategy, they make appeals like this. There's more that unites us then divides us. We want to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, even if we don't agree on everything. You mean like the gospel? 
And again, those appeals are true in many instances. But they are not true when the Bible is clear on a matter, and they are not true when the gospel is at stake. The Bible is clear about human sexuality. And these heretical teachings absolutely go to the heart of the gospel. Because they tell people that what Jesus had to die for, our sin, actually isn't sin at all, but instead is the way that God made some of us. These heretical teachings tell people it is God's will, God's will, for them to continue to live in a way that God's word says will separate them from God for eternity. It goes right to the heart of the gospel. And in these cases, friends, truth is more important than peace. And thankfully, many faithful people are starting to step up in these denominations They're acknowledging that truth is more important than peace. And many of these denominations are splitting. One of the most recent ones, an example, is with the Methodist. The United Methodist Church has finally come to the conclusion, and many within it, many faithful people within it, have come to the conclusion that their denomination is beyond saving, and the United Methodist Church is set to formally split. And let's be clear about what the split is about. The split is between those who affirm the truth of God's word and those who are violating clear teachings of scripture and doing damage to the gospel. Preaching an adjusted gospel, another gospel that is no gospel at all. This isn't just a difference of opinion. You go your way and be faithful to what God has said to you. We'll go our way and be faithful to what God has said to us. No. One group is being faithful to Scripture. One group has created another gospel that is no gospel at all. Truth over peace. When the Bible is clear and when the gospel is at stake. The fourth lesson, which I think I've covered in these comments, is that alterations to the gospel cannot be accommodated. The gospel is worth fighting for. We have a responsibility to the gospel of Christ. It is a sacred trust. We are not to compromise on the gospel. We have a responsibility to oppose alterations to the gospel, not to tolerate alterations to the gospel because of platitudes like, There's more that unites us than divides us. You know, if you get the gospel wrong, it doesn't really matter that much what else you agree on. You cannot walk in unity with those who preach a false gospel. You simply can't do it. So these are some of the lessons that we learn from the conflict between Paul and Peter in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Now let me quickly turn our attention to verses 15 through 21. To be honest, I'm probably not going to give these the time they deserve, but I want to briefly touch on them. We find Paul articulating the truth that is more important 
than peace. The truth that's more important than peace, verse 16, no one is justified by observing the law. Another way we could say this, no one is justified through human effort and human merit. Peter's actions in in withdrawing from the Gentiles uh, no doubt caused some confusion among the Gentile believers. Uh, He he had uh, appeared to affirm the teachings of Paul, but now by pulling back when the Jewish believers arrived, was he now suggesting that more was required for salvation? Well, was he communicating that deep down he really did believe that to remain saved, someone had to add circumcision in keeping the Jewish law to faith in Jesus? And so Paul makes it as clear as it can be. No one is justified by observing the law, never have been, never will be. In verse 15, Paul writes, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith In Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Here's what Paul is saying in this verse essentially. He's saying we Jews of all people should know that one is not justified by by observing the law. That's exactly why we put our faith in Jesus. We were raised in this stuff. We know that, that, that you can't be right with God this way. You can't be justified this way. That's why we came to faith in Jesus. We should know this beyond anybody else. And so what he's basically saying is, what are you doing playing games like this, Peter? You of all people know that this isn't right. Verse 17, Paul writes, If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin, absolutely not. Now that's a difficult verse to sort of unpack and understand, but basically what's happening there is Paul is pointing out that the gospel of grace and that fellowship with Gentile believers is consistent with what Jesus himself taught. Now, if you think back through the teachings of Jesus, he had taught that a person Uh, What a person eats doesn't contaminate their hearts. Jesus had taught that. In Acts 10, with the vision of the unclean animals and the vision given to Peter, the Lord had given Peter clear evidence that Gentile believers are in every way equal to Jewish believers. And Jesus had consistently taught that all who belong to him are one with him and therefore one with each other. And so what? Paul is essentially saying in verse 17 here is that if the Judaizers are right, then Jesus himself was wrong and is a minister of sin. Jesus says of himself that he's the way, the truth, and the life. The Judaizers say that Jesus is part of the answer, but then you need to add to Jesus. And so in verse 17, Paul is basically saying, who are you going to believe Jesus or the Judaizers? Here's a little bit of advice. (laughs) Whenever you have a choice between Jesus and anybody else, go with Jesus. Okay, go with Jesus. If Jesus says this and your pal says this, go with Jesus. If Jesus says one thing and your spouse says another thing, go with Jesus. 
no matter how tough it is, go with Jesus. Believe Jesus. No one is justified by the works of the law, but only by grace through faith in Christ. And then in verse 18, Paul writes, If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For those who have received Christ to return to a works-based righteousness, to, to return to keeping the law as a means of justification, doing that is an abandonment of grace, and it is sinful. It's sinful. So the truth that's more important than peace no one is justified by observing the law. And then verse 19 tells us more. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. Here's more truth that's more important than peace. Christ is our master. Not the law. We don't serve the law. We serve Jesus. And then verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Truth that's more important than peace. We live by faith in the Son of God. Not by faith in our own good works, not by faith in our own deeds, not by faith in our merit before God. We live by faith in the Son of God. We're told that we're united with Him in His crucifixion. Christ paid the law's demand through His death. Being united in his death, we're told that we're also united in his life. In fact, verse 20 gives us a truth that's so wonderful, it's really impossible to fully wrap our brains around it. Christ lives in us. Christ lives in us. Verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. We see in this verse the two pillars of the gospel. The grace of God and the death of Jesus. The grace of God and the death of Jesus. Two pillars of the gospel. And in that verse, Paul absolutely devastates the Judaizers' case when he writes, If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If circumcision and keeping Jewish traditions and customs if being a good enough person, serving enough at the food pantry, coming to church frequently enough, praying enough, all good things, all things we should do, all things that should flow out of our faith in Jesus. But if any of those things, any of those things ever become what we are looking to as our salvation, as our means of justification, then we have got it wrong. If circumcision and keeping Jewish traditions could make one righteous before God, if all those things that we do in our day and time could make us righteous before God, then Jesus didn't need to die. His death would have been pointless and he would have done it all for nothing. But Jesus did die because righteousness could not be gained through the law. Righteousness could not be gained through being a good enough person, no matter how good you are. And so Paul is telling the Judaizers and the Galatian believers 
that Jesus did not die for nothing. He died because that was the only way that they could be justified with God. No matter what legalistic religious traditions might say, no matter what our own human pride might want to be true, no matter how convinced we might be of our own goodness, the truth is that Jesus died for us because that was the only answer for our sin problem. It was the only way that we could be made right with God. Jesus didn't die for nothing. He died because we were powerless and we needed a Savior. The truth that is more important than peace. The gospel. No one is justified by the law. Christ is our master, not the law. We live by faith in the Son of God. We trust in the grace of God and the death of Jesus. We know that Jesus didn't die for nothing. He died because he's our only hope of salvation. This is the truth that's more important than peace. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Saved by grace through faith in him. That's the gospel. That's the truth that's more important than peace. May we believe this and live free from attempts at self-justification. May we believe this and honor the gospel as our sacred trust. And may we believe this and be willing to care about the gospel more than we do about keeping peace with those who preach another gospel which is really no gospel at all. Let's stand.